That was the voice of the orca with many names. Toki, Tokatai, Lolita, Skellichachtenat, the southern resident orca who recently died at the Miami Seaquarium after 53 years in captivity. And today, I wanted to share the start of her story. So I reached out to the author of Orca, How We Came to Know and Love the Ocean's Greatest Predator, historian Jason Colby, to talk about the infamous orca roundup at Penn Cove. Now, I don't think we've given a warning on one of our episodes since our very first one, where David Suki was talking about the Prime Minister and pipelines and dropped an F-bomb or three that required us to add a language warning so we would not get pulled from iTunes. But the story of the Penn Cove capture? It's a lot. We almost lost all of the Southern residents. So let's go with maybe not the best episode to catch right before bed. The other warning, after interviewing people from around the world over the last few months, we did this interview with someone a few miles away from us in Victoria, BC, and somehow ended up with some weird echo and unexpected audio glitches. So the sound isn't quite our usual sound, but it's easy enough to hear what everybody's saying. I'm Mark Laren Young, and this is Scanna, a podcast for fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts. And this podcast started because when I was working on my book, The Killer Whale Who Changed the World, I realized there were so many stories to tell about these amazing animals and the oceans they live in. Someone else who was telling these stories was Jason Colby. He was working on his book the same time I was working on mine. So we were early readers for each other. He shared some stories that made it into my book. He shared his researcher. So we've talked about some of this before and our earlier interview still on the site. He's also featured in my documentary, The 100-Year-Old Whale. Check out our website and newsletter for links. And if you'd like to make it possible for us to share more stories about orcas and all things equinoceanic more often, please join our pod at patreon.com or subscribe to our Substack newsletter, which features bonus stories about all the animals and issues we cover. A paid subscription would be beyond appreciated. And sharing our work right now is more essential than ever. If you don't already know this, the Canadian government is currently at war with Meta and Google and news scraping sites, which means that it is harder and harder to find pretty much anything newsy coming out of Canada. Because of that, we are now publishing the Scanner newsletter every two weeks and sharing news stories about all things eco and aquatic that's showing up in Canadian media outlets. So whether you're in Canada or not, this is the place to find out what's happening in the water here and what's being shared in the publications here. So please share our episodes, our Substack newsletter, and our social media. We are still on most outlets, though I kind of feel like I need a shower every time I use X. And now, Jason Colby on Toki's capture, and how, after almost ending the southern resident population before we even knew they existed, it led to the end of the capture era in the Sailor Sea. Thank you so much for doing this. I guess we should just dive right in. I wanted to talk to you because Chokate was captured at Pencove and you wrote the book on Pencove. Can you talk through what happened there? Yeah, I mean, it would be it would be arrogant for me to say I wrote the book on Pencove, but I wrote a lot, very long chapter on Pencove and uh, interviewed the guy that conducted those captures. I don't know how much context you want to go back, you know, how much the listeners are familiar with the story, but 
the activity of live orca capture, you know, as you know, had been going on in various forms in the, on the Pacific coast since 1964 and 1965. And you really see it cresting uh, in the late 60s and the early 70s on both sides of the border. You see it captures on the Sunshine Coast. You see captures uh, in Petter Bay around Victoria. And you also see these escalating captures on the U.S. side of the border. And the largest and at least up to that time, the most controversial capture occurs in Penn Cove in early August of 1970. And it's a really unusual capture in a number of ways. But one of the things that really marks it is that the company that conducts the capture, Nemo Incorporated, which is operating out of Seattle, owned by Ted Griffin, the owner of the Seattle Marine Aquarium, they're out, you know, looking for whales as they as they often are in the summer months in particular. And they end up Ted Griffin ends up being in the area when what we now know of as a super pod forms. And this is near uh, Woodby Island, kind of on the southern end of Woodby Island initially. He radios his partner, and they have to hurriedly hire a fishing skipper to help them with the capture who they hadn't worked with before. Their normal guys were in Alaska. So they end up hiring the skipper. They race out. They eventually corner what is almost the entire population we now know, the southern resident orcas in a body of water called Penn Cove, right off of Woodby Island. This is an area that's now famous for Penn Cove mussel farming, uh, aquaculture. At the time, it's less developed. They eventually capture virtually all of these orcas behind nets. They estimate at the time around 90 individuals. You know, it's really hard to, to do an accurate count, you know, 90 to 100, the estimates vary. But almost certainly the virtually the entire population of the southern residents. And that's, that's the largest capture that ever takes place in our area. Um, the other thing that makes it quite unusual, and then I'll sort of pause for another question here, but it happens, yes, in the summer when, you know, boaters are out and recreational boaters are out, but it happens really close to shore in a pretty busy area. And so from the very beginning, there's quite a bit of public attention on this capture, which quickly gets out of hand. Can you talk about that public attention? Because until one of the things that's hardest to get across to people, as I'm sure, you know, you've run into a lot as well, is just how little concern there was for killer whales at this time. And to get across that, you know, there were no laws protecting them. That prior to this, not only you know, it wasn't just that capture was okay. Prior to this, fishermen were shooting at them. Yes. I mean, it's always striking when you tell these stories and uh, your listeners or your readers respond with, oh my God, that's horrible. How could they possibly have captured orcas in this region? And I have to always remind them, well, yeah, I mean, people were shooting at them, but also bear in mind, there's still a whaling industry in the United States. There's still a whaling industry in Canada, especially on the East Coast, in Nova Scotia and Newfoundland. And so, you know, it's worth remembering that the argument at the time, if there could have been a debate at the time, it was really between whale catching and whale shooting, not whale catching and whale watching. And it's an important distinction to make. Now, by 1970, you've had orcas in various places, including in Seattle, Vancouver, and now for a year in Victoria, orcas on display. People's images of them are certainly changing pretty rapidly. But for the most part, still in flux. And so it is a pretty important moment, I think, for highlighting how those attitudes were changing by 1970. Because what you do see is 
a great deal of public attention. Now, as you, and, and I should say public opposition to this. Now, as you noted, um, and this is hard for people to believe too, in both the United States and in Canada, this was not regulated. Um, there were no protections for, for killer whales. They were not considered, you know, a game species. They're not considered a commercial species. They're considered, if anything, a pest or a vermin species under the sort of the laws at the time. And so once they rounded them up, you know, 90 to 100 animals, if Ted Griffin and his company would have wanted to and would have had the market to sell all 90 of them, they could have done that. If they had wanted to shoot them all in the nets, they could have done that. There may have been a firearms violation, but there would be no sort of conservation law violation. And in fact, the, the first regulations in Washington State don't come until the next year. And the first federal regulations in the U.S. don't come until the year after that. And so one of the things that's noteworthy about this story in hindsight, and you got to remember, everybody lives their lives forward and history moves forward. It doesn't move you know, with hindsight. That Ted Griffin, the owner of the company, actually makes the decision to immediately release about half of these or orcas um, because because he realizes they can't control them safely behind the nets. But it's also quite moving to the people that are watching from shore and increasingly, you know, watching this operation from their boats, from their pleasure craft, is that the the, the orcas who are released stay and hover around the nets with their families and they don't leave which is certainly a, a moment that lots of observers note that not only is there this panic and chaos within the nets, you know, as those uh, both adult and, you know, juvenile whales are spy hopping and trying to figure out sort of how to get around these nets and where they are, but their family members, their pod mates, you know, of what we now know as the Southern resident population, JKNL pods are hovering around the nets, you know, ma maintaining acoustic contact with their family members. And so certainly at the time it's, it's apparent, to people that these are animals with social connections. And in hindsight, of course, we now know this must have been horrifically traumatic for these pods, you know, to be torn apart. And, you know, they're in this moment, if you will, of kind of a joyous celebration that often happens for the Southern residents during the summer. And, you know, you're at this family reunion, essentially, and all of a sudden people are chasing you, you know, and detonating seal bombs, dropping nets. You know, you can imagine sort of how that would Change the dynamic of a family reunion for humans, and it certainly did for them. So you have that happen, and several days of chaos, you know, ensues. Now there's a large female that drowns entangled in nets very at one point in the capture, but even more horrifically in hindsight, you know, one of the saddest things that happens is that in the very first night, I think it's the first night, a couple of well-meaning activists, locals decide, you know, they want to help release these these orcas and so they row out to the nets and they actually use a bread knife to chop through the cork line of the the nets you know chop through some of the nets and try to release the orcas but you know not understanding how tides and currents worked in Penn Cove you know their actions rather than releasing these orcas caused the nets to collapse down on them and four calves are drowned in the nets as the result of this which you know, you don't blame the activists. They're responding to what they're seeing and they're doing what they think is right. But it sort of shows that the road to ruin is paid with good intentions. You know, you end up losing these four calves, all four of whom were almost certainly too young to have actually been sold. So they would have been released. So that happens. That in turn is one of the reasons why it becomes a pretty scandalous event because Ted Griffin and his company try to offer those calves carcasses to the federal scientists in Seattle. Those scientists at their lab in Seattle refuse them. And so he and his company decide to try to conceal the bodies 
by uh, stuffing them with rocks and sinking them in the Penco. And after the the capture is over, you know, after some of the whales are kept and sold, those carcasses um, turn up, you know, at various times in that fall. And if you think about the optics of that, whether it was illegal or not, it looks like a murder scene, right? It looks like bodies have been hidden, looks quite nefarious. And so that's one of the reasons why, you know, in the moment and then after the fact, this becomes a really explosive event. Can you talk about the orcas, including Tokate, who were sold? Like, And if you know any specifics about the Tokate story, that's fantastic. Please dive into that. Yeah. No, there have been, I mean, it's a pretty chaotic time. So there have been people interviewed who claim, you know, oh, I, I was, I was riding with, you know, Tokutai in the truck and, and such. I think it's probably safe to say that, you know, that the people that say they remember her specifically are probably, you know, sort of their memory is being shaped to, to fit the story now. I mean, there are, I believe there are ultimately eight young orcas taken from that capture and sold in various places. They're initially, as was usually the case, they're brought to the Seattle Marine Aquarium, you know, checked up, made sure they're old enough for transportation, you know, checked for diseases. There's a kind of a time for recovery before they're they're transported. And in her case, she is she's kept at the Seattle Seattle Marine Aquarium on the waterfront for a couple of weeks. And then she's sold to the Miami Seaquarium. So she goes to the Miami Seaquarium and this is in I believe it's late August 1970, she sold there. And she actually joins another Southern resident orca in Miami who's been there for two years. And his name is Hugo. Hugo was part of Elpon. He had been captured in a place called Vaughn Bay in Washington State in 1968. So he'd been there alone in that tank for a couple of years. He's joined by this new female, young female whale, whose pod we actually probably don't know precisely, even though lots of people claim that they do. and joins Hugo in that tank and lives with Hugo for 10 years until his death in 1980. Now, the reason I make this point is because there are a lot of people that have claimed, well, we've recorded Lolita's calls and those are LPOD calls. And so we know she came from LPOD. I would actually push back against this a little bit. I've talked to John Ford, sort of acoustic specialist about this, who confirmed that it's entirely possible that Lolita actually was from one of the other Southern Resident Pods, but picked up Hugo's calls and sort of adopted them over those 10 years of living with him, much like, you know, a child going into an adoptive family would adopt the accent of that family. So it's possible she's not from Pod. It's possible she's from JRK, but, you know, it's certainly possible that she is from Pod. Now, she lives with Hugo, in, you know, in this weird turn of events, right? I mean, there are two Southern Resident orcas from the Salish Sea, you know, Pacific Northwest or the West Coast of Canada, and they end up on the other end of the continent, right? And at the Miami Seaquarium, um, living together for 10 years, having a pretty big impact on people there. You know, I mean, Hugo has a fairly significant impact on uh, Rico Berry, who goes on to become an anti-captivity uh, activist in that, that area. But when Hugo dies in 1980, that's the last time that Tokotai has a poolmate for the next more than four decades. I guess the one piece I, I should have added in there that and maybe I said this already or it slipped through is that her initial name in, in Miami was given as Lolita, or they decided on Lolita for the bizarre reason that they thought it would be sexier or more kind of intriguing to use this name drawn from the Nabokov novel, which is, you know, 
in lots of ways, a pretty disturbing novel about, you know, an older man and an underaged girl in this relationship, this trip together. The fact that they chose Lolita has always sat pretty poorly with a lot of people and it sort of grew. And that's why it was, people were so outspoken about wanting to use Toki or Tokitai as, as the name. Can you talk about the other whales that were sent away? Because it was eight in total. So you've got the three that were, sorry, the four juveniles that died. And you've got seven juveniles or eight juveniles that are sent away. That that feels like Pankova was the time we lost a generation. That beyond the other captures, that Pankova alone pretty much wiped out a generation of this population. I've said this, you know, from time to time, and others have said this. It is true that the last capture of the Southern Residents takes place in 1973. And I promise I'll circle back to your question because it's a great question. The last capture of the Southern Residents takes place in 1973. And really for the next, you know, quarter century after that ends, and Southern Residents you know, make a recovery. They recover to nearly 100 individuals, you know, by the late 90s. So I and others have said, you know, for very specific reasons, you know, you can't just point to capture the reason that their numbers are falling because they did recovery of other stresses like, like food and such. However, I'd like to walk that back or at least complicate it by addressing your question, which is that I think that it's safe to say, and I'm not a specialist, and I don't think anybody's really an expert in the exact you know, impact that these kind of demographic shocks would have on a population this small, but I think it's safe to say that there were long-term impacts, damages, and distortions made by these captures on the population and its its age profile and its its reproductive capacity and such, meaning you know, even though the captures stop in 73, these impacts, and especially something like Pencove, where, as you say, ultimately you have, you know, eight individual animals sold, four young ones killed. Now, there's no guarantee that those would have lived to adulthood and reproduced, but you know, that's potential. And yeah, we also have a female of healthy breeding age also drowning in that. So, so you're actually talking about a loss of 13 individuals in that one event. It's hard to imagine that that doesn't affect the long-term kind of reproductive success of the population. And certainly, I mean, obviously in a large, slow-growing, slow-reproducing mammalian predator like killer whales, you know, reproduction works pretty slowly, right? So each, each calf is quite precious and not just in the, the numbers it adds, but certainly the reproductive potential it has, especially females, right? And so, you know, it's worth asking the question, you know, yeah, you can look at these individuals brought, you know, taken out of the population. But when you're talking about a young female like Tokotai, who's, you know, maybe five years old, five or six when she's removed, um, you're talking about an animal and she lived to, you know, be almost 60 years old, probably. You're talking about a, a female who might have had four, five, six births just herself of viable calves. And so if you extrapolate that out to the others that are lost, I think it's safe to say the reproductive capacity and some of the demographic limitations of Southern residents are facing now, they're still feeling the effects of the captures, even if that isn't the most proximate reason for their struggle right now. I would say that's food, but definitely something like Pencov has a massive impact. And as you say, it's probably safe to say it was a generational loss. 
there's another juvenile who's captured near Bainbridge Island shortly after this that is almost certainly a young animal separated during the chase in Penco. So that would be another young animal that's removed. Wow. Okay. Any last thoughts on this, on Penco, on Toki? Yeah. I mean, I'd say, I mean, I like to point out that, I mean, a lot of people conflate that one Pencove moment, but there were actually four Pencove captures, you know, one in 66, one in 69. There was really tiny, this huge one in 70. And then there's another one in 71 that's actually regulated by the Washington State uh, Game Department. And so these captures do continue. They are regarded as kind of a dark history of our region, right? That a lot of people are kind of shocked to even hear that this happened. I tend to look at it in a bit more nuanced way in the sense that I think about, I, I do think that the, I will never deny the kind of trauma that the whole population experienced. And I suspected those that lived through it still remember that. Those that are still alive still remember it today when they go past that spot. But I would also say that it could have been way worse, right? I mean, if Griffin had done what the fisherman who was helping him demanded, which is to sell all of them. You could have seen the entire population of Southern residents extinguished before we had even identified them scientifically as a population, right? I mean, nobody knew. I and mean, this is the thing I'd like to point out to people is people often say, well, how could they do that? How did they not know? And like, well, remember, this is not just the, before the time that we had given them names or alphanumerical designations. This is before we even knew that this was a discrete population that, you know, spent a lot of its time in our area. You know, a lot of people believe that orcas kind of came and went from the North Pacific and their supply was sort of, you know, much larger, that there were thousands and thousands in our area. And so, I mean, I do like to point that out that people, you know, at the time didn't know that they were potentially, you know, damaging a really tiny population. But the other thing I like to point out is, and maybe this is a nice segue to talk about Tokutai, if you want to do that a little bit, is... It's it's really easy, I think, to focus on these traumatic uh, cinematic moments where people were really upset with the captures. These are these feel like spectacles of violence when people are seeing them, right? I mean, they're seeing the the whales frightened, they're hearing their calls to one another, which which really touch human heartstrings quite a bit, right? I think it's easy to focus on those moments and it's and to be appalled by them and to be angry about captivity and angry about the history of captivity, angry about the present, you know, existence of captivity. And it's much less cinematic, much less compelling to think about sort of long-term threats to the southern residents that we in the region in particular continue to sort of add to. It's much less sexy to talk about toxins and dropping you know numbers of chinook salmon their primary prey this is way more complicated than saying that's awful that they caught them they shouldn't have done that i'm appalled awesome thank you so much for doing this i really appreciate your time anytime always happy this is a really important podcast whenever you want me to come on i am happy to do it fantastic Thanks again for checking out Scanna with Mark Laren Young. Please subscribe so you don't miss upcoming interviews with Gloria Pankratzi on her film Co-Extinction, author David Schiffman on Shark Myths and Mysteries, and for Octopus Tober, Jennifer Mather and Dana Stoff on The Strange World of Cephalopods. Please join our pod on Substack and at Patreon.com. Your support helps us pay for the tech 
and the human beings required to make this happen. The more support we get, the more stories we can tell. I'd like to thank all our Patreon patrons, including Robert Anderson, Simon McNair, Susie Venuta, Darren Learn Young, and Yosef Wask. Skin is also brought to you by Orca Publishing, publishers of my three books about whales for younger readers, my two books about sharks for younger readers, and my next book, which is going to be all about those cephalopods. Also, very special thanks to our friends at Eagle Wing Whale Watching and Wildlife Tours. I mentioned The 100-Year-Old Whale before. That movie would not have been possible without their help. Follow us on social media, share the show with your friends, and since we may no longer be on social media because Canada's war with Google and news scraping sites, share it with everyone, however you can. Reviews on your favorite podcast provider are always appreciated. Those high reviews, they help the podcast get seen more often by more people. If this podcast didn't work for you, this is Pod Save America, and I am Barack Obama. Scan is stationed in Saanich, BC, territories of the Saanich, Songhees, and Esquimalt peoples, Executive producer, the always awesome Ray Manu. Scan a site, courtesy of our Wizard of Web, Katie Brown. Research thanks the unsinkable Courtney Bell. Audio magic, courtesy of our powerful producer, Bug Lewis. Scanna's theme song, Scanna, is by Leah Abramson. And now, to sign us off, once again, Toki. <laughs>